Hello and welcome to Shakespeare on Screen, a podcast where I, I James Kelly, talk about adaptations and of Shakespeare plays and just some looser adaptations of Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got on we with me my co-host for so many other wonderful podcasts, Ranking Thrones and Civil Wars, my good friend Evan Camacho. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. So. First question I ask for some of my guests is, what's your relationship with Shakespeare, Evan? Well, as a as an actor, we're we're semi semi forced to an, analyze Shakespeare, and, and one of the things that I, Shakespeare I think doesn't get analyzed correctly because in high school you're supposed to read these plays. You don't read plays. You have to bring them to life. You have to be able to see them and, and, and see the actions of what's going on. So for me, when I was first introduced to Shakespeare, it was very ambiguous. But as I got older and actually got to see more Shakespeare and actually perform a little bit of Shakespeare, then it started becoming more about this is a visual media medium, not, not a literary medium. So that's my relationship to it. Wow. And I, I agree. I mean, last guest I had on, um, you know her a little bit, Evan. Mm-hmm. Um, but one name drop here. Um, but we, we talked about that, and that's very true. Um, and as a as an English major, this is a controversial statement, but I, I pretty much agree with you, Evan, is that I'd say nine out of ten Shakespeare plays – Really, you should always see a performance, mm-hmm. not not necessarily a bad performance, although rarely well, can you ever also, do a truly bad performance with Shakespeare, I must say. That being, that being said, though, I, I had this conversation with someone actually a little bit earlier today. Let's be honest. There is a good percentage, I would almost go as far as to say at least half, of Shakespeare's plays that in general are not really masterpieces or even that good. They they are not necessarily <laughs> biting words, buddy. But <laughs> well, but ser- but but seriously, think about it. Think about it. When you when most people think of Shakespeare, you can name the amount that they think of usually under ten generally. Even though Shakespeare wrote uh, over thirty, he wrote half of those were comedies, mm-hmm. and most yep. of those in his time were written so that they had something to perform. <laughs> well, that's one way of looking at it. Um, I mean, most famously, and this is a rumor, it's not confirmed as true, it'll never be confirmed as true, but mm-hmm. um, Shakespeare wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor specifically because Queen Elizabeth I just loved Falstaff so much and was like, hey, what's happening to Sir John? Because at the end of, of Henry IV Part Two, he's left by Prince by king henry the fifth what's happening to him now i was hmm. like what i thought i was done with the character you want more falstaff okay fine i'll give you more falstaff I mean, that's third play with falstaff well remember that again shakespeare was a businessman oh absolutely 100 he was a businessman but but and, also to the point of also to the point of interpretation there's all these classic classics of adapting shakespeare for to be more modern or to be more uh more contemporary or rather than trying to keep it in its period piece 
And to be honest, especially the comedies, the comedies in general don't translate as well to modern day. I don't know whether or not I fully agree with you or disagree with you. I say Much Ado About Nothing is is a play that's like pretty. You're not familiar with? Uh, I, I've never seen it. I'm familiar with it, but I've never seen it. Okay, well, watch the Kenneth Branagh's movie. It's fa- phenomenal. But also, just honestly, Joss Whedon's modern adaptation is a perfect example of where modernization completely mm-hmm. works. Because that's oh, yeah. basically that's a rom com. It doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. Well, that's actually a perfect segue into talking about this. So I'm really proud I got Evan to come on and talk about Shakespeare with me. And I got him to watch a Shakespeare movie. And uh, but I knew I know Evan. I know the perfect easy way to get him in is is with our good friends, the Romans. So he watched (laughs) um, Antony and Cleopatra. And this is my first exposure to Antony and Cleopatra. So both of us came in fresh. We had never read the play. Never I've never read to, the play. I've yet to read the play. Nor do and, I really. Nor do I honestly really want to read the play. I want to see it. Okay. True actor we have on here. This is interesting. Well, but so, no, but no, but that that is the way you see Shakespeare. That is the way you do Shakespeare. Is it is a play. You need <laughs> to see it. You need to hear it, and you need to see it. Very true. Because you Very lose true, yeah. a lot. You lose a lot of the meat from just reading it. Of just well, so much is brought in the performance and how lines are read. Exactly. And that's what exactly. where I will. I will say that that just the text alone is is very phenomenal and a, a wonderful experience. But yes, seeing it performed can bring so much more to it. Right. And so we saw the National Theater live. Heaven mm-hmm. bless them. Although I still, although I do wish that they would let you buy the plays. Yes. So stupid. Well, hey, don't bite the hand that feeds you, buddy. Oh, they, I know. Be, because of the um, people dated, hopefully, when, when people are reading, listening to this two years from now, or heck, even later, will will scratch their heads. But there was this thing called the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Yes. And in the middle of that, to to boost sales for the National Theater Live has, was, and I'll say right now has, has been uploading a bunch of their wonderful theater, their their recorded plays right. to YouTube for people to watch and asking people to donate for them. It's a well, wonderful, wonderful program. It uh, is, I, we might go slightly divergent. The the fact of the matter is that theater is very tough during quarantine. Yes. Oh, well, yes. It's the definition of, of a spectator thing that right. there can be no audience right now. Exactly. So I'm very thankful that they, they let us, they shared their 2018 production of Antony and Cleopatra, which... Mm-hmm. The biggest name actor they they got two big name actors for the co the title roles. They got Ray Fiennes, aka Lord Voldemort, as Antony, and they got wonderful actress Sophie O'Kane. I don't know how I'm gonna o- say it this way. Uh, we're, I'm gonna butcher this, but I'm looking at it right now. It's a Okanido or Okanido. I think it's 
I think it's Okanedo. Okay, again, we, we we are apologizing for names because if we we if we butcher that name, we're sorry. Yes. We are very sorry. So Sophie Okanedo, who is um very much a Shakespeare vet, she wonderfully wonderfully played Margaret of Anjou in Henry the in the Hollow Crown's adaptation of Henry the Sixth and Richard. Ooh. And she's really great as in that role, too. Mm-hmm. And, and a bit controversial, but that that is my f- that is my favorite dramatic slash historical female character of Shakespeare is Margaret of Anjou. Oh, interesting. Just because Margaret has so much range and she does so much in in the variety of plays, and we see many different sides to Margaret. That's true. Even well, though at the same time, like, not she's not likable necessarily. In fact, she's pretty contemptible, but <laughs> fascinatingly contemptible. And that's actually a good segue into talking about Antony and Cleopatra. So, what did we both think about this play? I thought, in talking about you and modernizing, I'll say right now, like, I'm not a fan of modernizing Shakespeare. Like in general, no. Nine out of ten even. times, I'm like pretty against it. Like, the, I I'll disagree with you, and I and I would say like the comedies are kind of one of the only times where I can even remotely stomach it, because it's just like the comedies are a bit more absurd. Yes, absolutely. Like the well, there many times, and they should be quite frankly played as farces, because that's what they are. Right. They're just Which kind is of what like they are. They are farces. They're really fun farces, and you and they're kind of farce is a bit more universal. Mm-hmm. The, definitely, like the histories are literally dated as they're they're, they're right. The history, the histories are time. that. Well, and then the dramas in the case of the, the dramas and the tragedies. The reason why people try to up. I, I, I think people try to modernize them or directors try to modernize them in order to make, they, they try to say it's to make it more accessible to the modern audience, which I think is a bit of a, a, a bit of a screw you to your audience, because I don't, I, I refuse to believe that the audience won't understand what's going on. Yes. Because, well, because Shakespeare's dialogue is designed to explain what's going on, literally. <laughs> yes, literally. It's a different style of writing, Yes. At times, but Shakespeare is not, uh, despite what what cer- certain actors have trouble with reading Shakespeare, is like Shakespeare is not another language. It's not from a different time. There's some different slang words, yes, right. and and different well, terminology. But he he's writing in English and pretty modern English. Right, and Shakespeare was meant to appeal to the lower classes. Oh, one hundred. So it had to it, it had to inherently be for lack of a better word, simple. Mm-hmm. But one thing, well, one thing I want to bring up right away is like what one of the flaws of dramatic Shakespeare is that no matter what production you see, they are long. They are very long. Not all. Some some plays are shorter, but yes. A lot of plays, and well, that gets in, in, into the, the choice that many directors have to make is whether or not to abridge the play and what do you abridge and what do you choose to leave out right right and i I think it's pretty safe to say that this play was a pretty much 
unabridged production. Of yeah, this was pretty. Yeah, this was pretty damn uh, un uh, unedited, as the word is. I mean, it was it was a three hour show. That being said, I was gripped. I was oh, gripped. Yes. I was gri- I was gripped, but it does drag at times. There are certain scenes, and I don't I I can't point them out even if I want even if I try. But certain scenes do drag a bit, but that's just natural. So, but we kind of got a little bit sidetracked, but like going into modernizing. Mm-hmm. Now, having said what I earlier said about modernizing, this one it's it surprised me. It totally worked for me. It did. It, it, it like did. of like usually I I think I, I guess the bad taste, and this is an episode that's coming down the line that I'm still dreading. As I say, it's going to happen, but I'm not looking forward to it, is when we I talk to some friends for the episode when we're going to do Romeo plus Juliet, the Leonardo mm. DiCaprio mm. movie. I'm like, that's one of the, the great examples for me for why I hate modernizing Shakespeare. I'm just Fair like, enough. I'm just talking about, about swords and then you bring out a gun. It's like, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Okay, but... But here, one, they don't have references to guns as no. swords. But yeah, you got people with with modern with modern clothing and and modern mm-hmm. weaponry. Right. And and most interestingly, you got you have uh, Sextus Pompey come out of a submarine. Right. And, right. The ships. The ships, which actually works surprisingly well in the context of a modern, of a modern setting. And yet, yeah, it all works for me. Mm-hmm. I totally don't mind seeing all these people in suits, and like kind of like party clothes, modern right. party clothes. Right. It all really, really works. I, I was really surprised and t- took a taken a bit aback by that but like it never really occurred to me even the scene where antony is put into his armor yes into modern armor it mm-hmm. really was like no it's still just basically like yeah it's a flak suit instead of a suit of armor right it's, it's still it's it still works mm-hmm. it's still basically getting the whole idea of like of like by the way, if, you've ever, if you've ever by the way if you've ever actually worn flak armor it's first of all, it's heavy. Second of all, it, if you don't know what you're doing, it can be really hard to put on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. If, you, if you've actually ever worn that type of armor, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. I don't know personally, like other than the interesting moment where they and w- when they were being really creative. But um, let me look see if I can get the director's name. Just go to IMDb. But uh, but the director's choice to have um. Like some, oh yeah, I got it right here. Uh, Simon Goodwin looks. Like yeah, okay. It. So Mr. Goodwin's wonderful choice to have um, when uh, Caesar is looking is going through Antony's actions. They and where and his whereabouts. They have like a TV monitor displaying mm-hmm. that. I like that touch. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that, that was like one of the only really modern touches they right. brought. Um, I mean, it's also it's worth mentioning, had, and it still had the Egyptian aesthetic to it, which works. 
Yes. Like I said, it still works. Everything that they did works. I have no criticism about the setting, the way it was displayed. And also, to be honest, the, the setting as is most Shakespeare should be is actually quite minimal for what you're trying to portray. So. I, I'm of two minds of that, my friend. Mm-hmm. And this is why I love coming and doing this podcast. Well, and why I want to do this podcast with so many people about any and all Shakespeare adaptations. Right. My own sense, and I'm not a narcissist. I want to talk to other people and get everyone else's uh, mm-hmm. opinion on, on Shakespeare. And th- and you, we've never really talked about Shakespeare in all our friendship. And this is a wonderful new experience for me. Well, which is fun. Which is funny, we'd like to point out, we went to go see a Shakespeare show together. We went to go see Hamlet together a few uh, when we were uh, when we were in college. Uh, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. You, we might, no. you might I have, but I, 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 I didn't. Although there was a Shakespeare play that, that was produced by our college. Yes, there was a producer at our college. I don't know if we went there. I saw it twice, and I can't remember whether I dragged you to both of them. I don't think I did, but I'm not I sure. went to one of them. I went to one I of them. I don't remember one seeing them. it I with you. I don't remember which one I dragged you to. <laughs> and, that uh, one was a, and that one was a comedy. That one was a comedy. Yeah, yeah that was As You Like It. It was a good mm-hmm. performance. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we went to the after party together, so maybe I didn't go with I you. I think you did one, didn't go, to the, go to the last one. Okay. All right. Um, so, yeah, um, here's actually a little bit we can talk about now. Mm-hmm. Also, just, um, just free, free flowing. Um, right. so casting choices. So I am 100% A-OK and encourage colorblind casting when it comes to Shakespeare. Same. And so... And what what I said on on and Evan chime in, but like we're both obviously because we host a, a podcast talking about Roman history, but Rome like something that no one really understands yeah. because quite frankly of fifties Hollywood movies is Rome was a very poly ethnic place. Yes. And so yes. Octavian Caesar slash Augustus Caesar was not black. No. No, he was not. And actually, it it is debated, but probably Cleopatra wasn't either. No. No, because Cleopatra was not Egyptian. Her blood was not from Egypt. She was a Macedonian Greek. Um, she She was descended through incestuous marriage, by the way. Yes, yes, 14, the Ptolemies. Thirteen generations of of Greeks. There. Well, there is a, some debate I've heard, like that that Cleopatra's mother might have been a bit more Egyptian. Yeah. Yes. So, like, there might be like through that something of a debate. Right. But I mean, let's face it; she wasn't a Nubian, which which are known for being quite dark. So, yeah, no. So, but that, hey, I'm a, Miss Sophie Okonedo is brilliant in in her performance. Right. I thought she pulled I thought she pulled it off perfectly because the thing with Cleopatra was that it was never what she looks like is relatively unimportant. 
you have to nail you have to nail her pomposity her she was big she was she was loud she was charismatic and okay so yeah so getting into the performances let's talk about performances we'll, we'll probably talk for a lot right. and yeah the real cleopatra was was definitely not uh, a small personality no no one would ever accuse her of being a wallflower, <laughs> to say the very, least. Very true. Um, so, and we can get into this now, although, although this might be spoiling in a future podcast we might do along the lines, but in terms of dramatic interpretation... Yes. You know, Shakespeare, like, is rightfully taken a task for, like, a couple times where it's like, Richard III was not the way Shakespeare depicted him. No. Both to in, the propaganda, it's all absurd. <laughs> that being said, he's pretty spot on, I think, when it comes to his interpretation of Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah. And to, to a lesser degree, Octavian. To a lesser degree, but but that's a whole that that's a video essay in and of itself. It is, yes. Well, Octavian. So, he who's called Caesar the entire time, which is actually very right. accurate for how he was preferred to be called. Only his enemies would call him Octavian. It's kind of like it's like calling him a, a past self. It was like calling him boy or kid. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, famously, um, uh, when Nero was emperor of Rome, his his rival claimant, Britannicus, would always call him by his original name, Lucius Domitius. Mm-hmm. Which is like, I'm not Lucius Domitius, I'm Nero now. Right. Like, who are you fooling? You're now yeah. Claudian. Well, and even the and even the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra is first of, first of all. They were together a long time. Yes. Yes. And that and and why Antony with her is very controversial because there is there is something very poetic and very very romanticized about this romantic uh, semi forbidden love, just as a very passionate love affair. But in reality, there were a lot of perks for both of them. Absolutely. Um, well, it was. It was never fully romantic, but it wasn't. It was never purely political. Yes, it was. It was one of those rare where, for both parties, until the end, it actually worked out for both of them. It worked out for both of their <laughs> needs and and for their wants. Yes. Now, um, so we, we maybe that's all we want to say right now. Mm-hmm. For for historical accuracy, I'd give it about a B plus. Same. Like the only thing that's really like egregious <laughs> is that he calls the real life person a Hinobarus. Ah, Hinobarus. Ah, right. Which I completely and 100% forgive because one, quite frankly, until I saw this play, a Hinobarus was one of those figures from history that just never was mentioned to me in my history books. 
yeah i've read and i've read a couple on on this time period and just although actually okay bring it up for you kind of in this play inobarus inobarbus is kind of the lucius verinus Right, just kind of the the loyal everyman. Yeah. For for fans of HBO's Rome, like I think Lucius Verinus basically took Eno Barbus's place. Right. In the last couple episodes. Well, and to see. So. Relax. Relax. It's just a firework. <laughs> you're still having fireworks where you're at <laughs> oh yeah it happens all the time wow well props to him exactly <clears throat> we have yet to talk about the performances so let's well, get let's, let's yeah. talk exactly that so we've got we got anthony well actually we got cleopatra so yeah in a way well, well i love how Okanedo, and she did this with Margaret, but I think it's much more pronounced in her in her Cleopatra mm-hmm. of how vain and jealous and actually, but but wonderfully like funny. Yes, like, like the first half is much more kind of Wolf of Wall Street comedic. Mm-hmm. If you'll agree with me on that, like yeah, and like of just like. And, like, Okanedo's Cleopatra is just, like, the entire time, understandably, obsessed with, like, all the people Antony is married to. <laughs> I'm just like, how's your wife? Is your wife, like... And, like, this that wonderful scene where she's... She, she gets, like, this person where she throws... Yeah. Where she throws the servant, the messenger into like the fountain for telling him, yep. yeah, Anthony just got married. Yeah. And then is like, what's she look like? Is she prettier than me? Yeah. <laughs> That's so just wonderful. I love that. Mm-hmm. And that like, was the that vanity, was the jealousy, it. the understand, but completely all, by the way, 100% understandable. Yes. I mean, this play, and maybe I haven't read the text, so I can't fully say. It's worth mm-hmm. mentioning, like in in real historical times, if Cleopatra had these kinds of outbursts, it would also be worth pointing out. Yeah, I'm also mother to to three of his kids. Right. So it's kind of like she has very justifiable reasons to be envious and jealous. Mm-hmm. It's like what? My baby daddy went and cheated on me and got married again? Yep. What the hell's Sound. wrong with me? I'm a queen. A right. queen. Mm-hmm. What? What's she got that I don't got? <laughs> Roman blood. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and a brother. Uh, and a brother who doesn't have schemes of his own. <laughs> <clears throat> and so in that first half, like, Okanedo's performance is just so... Hits that right balance of, like, where she's kind of distracting Antony from... And what Eno Barbus... And uh, let, I got his name on IMDb, so I'm going to credit him. 
Yep. Tim McMullen as Eno Barbus is 100% like his performance is phenomenal. He is the heart of this yeah. play. And his journey is so wonderful in this play. And that point where he finally has to just like say like, look, we're just like, Anthony, I love you, but I, I cannot do this anymore. Yeah. I'm out. I'm out. Like, what the hell are you talking about? It's a little bit like the movie Downfall. We're just like, it's just like, are you on the planet Earth? Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? Like, still fighting? We've lost. We've lost, and you, you're talking about we're still going to fight it out? Right. Which actually is true to history, by the way. Yes, yeah, that, that was very accurate. Well, because by the end, a like combination even, of, of grief and just bad decision making, and also the fact that Cleopatra, for all her statements of being a devoted woman, was an incredibly self-centered opportunist. Uh, you can say self-centered opportunist. I will say pragmatic. But either way, yeah. either way, it's still just like ugly. Yeah. And so, um, well then let's talk about Ray Fiennes from, from the first half. Oh yeah. So one I loved, and this is actually a little bit uncomfortably similar to, um, the performance by, in a non Shakespeare play, although weirdly, okay. Watching this, this play, my friend, Mm-hmm. It made me realize how much like the the huh. Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra movie, yeah, basically like copied Antony and Cleopatra, the Shakespeare play. That makes sense. Which is like really weird because not just like plot scenes and like really like specific moments, but like they but but if you watch the movie, they kind of go for this almost iambic pentameter dialogue. So it's just like it just was like well why don't you just do Antony and Cleopatra if if you want to do this like kind of like poetic dialogue specifically one particular moment uh, that's is like towards the end yeah. of the play when when Caesar is given the notice that Antony is dead mm-hmm. and like Caesar can't believe that Antony is dead just by like that simple phrase it's like what no no like there should be like thunder and big right like like what just like just simple as that and like the roddy mcdowell did a a very a varied version of that ah. that same model he gave like a very similar monologue but with different dialogue to it interesting like maybe that might be another episode forthcoming hmm. i'm just like i'm just talking about cleopatra because it's basically an adaptation of this play i'm just like just roddy mcdowell says like that's simple just like that no shout mark Antony is dead (laughs) i was just that yeah just that yeah which kind of like yeah i understand so but no um both in reality but in the in the movie um Notorious real-life drunk, um, yeah. Richard, Richard Burton, 
pretty much for all of his scenes and the especially like once Cleopatra is is starting a serious romantic relationship with with Cleo with Mark Antony, there's never a scene where Mark Antony does not have a glass of wine in his hands. Yep. Which unfortunately was true to reality of that there was rarely a, a moment where George Richard Burton was not sober. Ugh. Yeah. He was a drunk. He was an oh, yes. incredibly horrendous drunk. I'm pretty sure, I won't say for sure, but I don't think Ray Fiennes was really drunk when when he was doing this this play. No. But, like, he does a great performance playing Mark Antony drunk. Yes. Of, like, every scene in the first half of the play, like, Mark Antony is drunk. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, the, the, the couple times where it's finally is like, uh, your wife is dead, is like, what? And he finally, like, momentarily sobers up and bees and is back to being, like, real serious Antony. And that's when, like, Cleopatra's, like, vain, like, what the hell? What? You're being serious, Antony. I don't like serious Antony. Be back to being fun, Antony. Right. It's almost like the, uh, he's almost like the ultimate frat boy, frat girl, girlfriend relationship, which is so weird. Also pretty true to history. (laughs) Yes. Again, like why we gave it a B plus. That's not really wrong from history. Mm-hmm. Actually, Cleopatra was a bit more of the less of the party partiers of the two. Yes. Well, in the case of because Antony more or less was at a uh, he was essentially an exile in paradise, really. Oh yeah. Well, no, no. And like why I said said uh, Wolf of Wall Street. And he does a great job and finds this an amazing job of like this, of that phase. I'm just like, he's just partying his ass off. Right. Just like, I don't have any responsibilities. So I'm just partying my ass off. And when Eno Barbus comes like the grim face of reality with a smile on his face and at times like saying like, "Eh, why should we go back? Let's just have a good time. But like at the same time, it's like, well, you do got to go back eventually, sir. But not for a while. Yeah. But because the minute he goes back and. And so I love that when they finally when And a perfect distillation of their characters and where you you mentioned visuals. Visuals and performance of just the line reading and performances of Ray Fiennes as Anthony when he meets Caesar. Mm-hmm. He's, he's half drunk. And he has a a wine glass in his hands as he's talking to to Caesar, trying to justify everything that's happened, yeah. and mm-hmm. sell that like, no, no, no way, no way, man, like, no, I didn't encourage my wife to do all that crazy, crazy shit, no, that crazy shit. That wasn't me. That was my wife, just on her own. I swear. Dang mistake. Just... In ter- also, um, in terms of interesting interpretation of history, mm-hmm. and this is also where I would probably credit great performances and staging and direction. Yeah. Uh, the way that they po- portray Lepidus in this play. Yeah, that was specifically a... this performance. This performance 
Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. This is also, by the way, which we haven't covered yet, this is a sequel to to Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's right. Julius Caesar. This is the tragedy of Julius Caesar. This is exactly a, a sequel. And like Richard II to Henry IV of, of seeing Bolingbroke become Henry IV in between those plays, this is a giant kind of leap in character for Antony. In Julius Caesar, Antony is really on top of things. He's really mm-hmm. like a real big prime mover, and he gets the, the famous Friends, Romans, Countrymen speech. Right. That is one of the by, greatest... By the way, real, the real speech is actually even more amazing. <laughs> more incendiary, but yes. Uh, and... And yet here he's a shadow of his self. And that's part of the whole play. I think part of the whole play that I do love and many interpretations, including this one, go for. And I, that's why I love the casting of, and I don't mean this in a negative way, uh, in the casting of of Okanedo and Ray Fiennes, of casting middle-aged people that look mm-hmm. very distinctly middle-aged. yes. I want to especially compliment Ray Fiennes of either either he put on pounds or he let himself proudly display a pot belly. I remember that. I remember so that. many times it's just like it's like the pot belly is so prominent. Which is funny because Ray Fiennes, if you've actually ever seen the guy, he's actually he's very slim. He's not a yes. big guy. Yeah. So just like that that's part of the performance and I love it of just like that, like of earlier when Caesar is, is envying the glories of Antony. But then when you see Antony and Caesar talk, it's just like, it's like, are you sure? Really? It's like, it's like he was that once, but not anymore. He's like, that's kind of to to bring it up into other forms of fiction uh, in game of Thrones, the the King, uh, Robert Baratheon was described in his youth as this, this stallion of a man, this, this young, dark-haired, fit, very handsome, 17 years of ruling late, later, he's fat, he's got a double chin, he's got bloated cheeks, he's been drinking, or sort of, sort of low-brow. <laughs> yep. And Ned actually talks to his wife, and he's like, he's like how nice did he get that fat? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And... But seriously, that that is that is a very f- great visual where it's like you hear this great general. It's kind of like the opposite of uh, it, it. It's the opposite of um, of a colonel. Um, God, what what is it in uh, in um, uh, Apocalypse Now? Who's the who's oh um Kurtz. Gilmore? Oh 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 Kurtz. Kurtz. It's kind of the opposite of that. You expect this great, amazing man, and it's like, he's jello. Yeah. What happened to him? Well, it's interesting. And, like, uh, and, and Shakespeare did this very often of just like middle age or just age in general, really diminishing these once great youths. Yeah. Which, not that that doesn't very often happen. Oh, absolutely of um the the first season of of the crown was all was half about 
how Winston Churchill is this sad shadow of his former self. Mm-hmm. That's just like not well, this great man who won World War II. Yep. And so, and kind of talking a little bit, segueing into that, or going back, in terms of performance, let let me get the actor's name again. I want to be nice to him. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. I know who you're about to talk about. So, I will say that, like, it's always been a bit disappointing. Just because, like, I'm such a big fan of the figure in real life. Uh, yes. Although fan is a bit of a strong word. I'm very interested and fascinated by this figure. Right. The portrayal of Caesar by Shakespeare of of, of Octavian is yeah. is very it's not it really depends on the actor to bring it out. It does. Because there's not theoretically a lot to work with there. It's the same right. with Bolingbroke in Richard II. Although I think there's more with Bolingbroke, quite frankly, than there is in... Although, no, no, not necessarily. So, the actor, and forgive me if I say this wrong, Tunji Kasim. Kasim does an an amazing job with it, I think, Mm -hmm. of just being the perfect foil to Ray Fiennes' Antony. Right. Which is what he's supposed to be, of just being this incredibly rational to the point of a little bit of coldness Mm -hmm. and being 100% sober. And when they have this great party off, uh, (laughs) like he says, like outright in dialogue, like, I don't want to drink. No, I'm not drinking. Yep. Like, nope. Oh, we we got sidetracked, but Lepidus. So Lepidus is like, like in dialogue in Julius Caesar, there's a scene. That's where I brought up Julius Caesar. Why Mm -hmm. want to be? Caesar. Of the, there's a scene with Lepidus, and then like when Lepidus is off stage, like Antony decries and mocks Lepidus as this total useless guy. Yes. Which pretty accurate to history. Mm-hmm. And in this ad- adaptation of the play, Lepidus is the peacemaker. Lepidus is like the the great equalizer of like that between Antony and Caesar of just being like kind of like, hey guys guys come on come on guys 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 can we which just is weird which is weird because in history he was probably anything but yes for the play though it works but well because yes. you need you need the third party to act as the same one and when he's all once he's been removed from power all bets are off exactly. So let's talk about Kasim, Octavius. So I really, I really enjoyed it, and it was well. It was. It's a very strange thing because the character he made the character probably more unlikable than it was probably meant to. But what? But what's what's funny about that is that in the context of this kind of almost party atmosphere and kind of loosen up it actually came across as a lot better than I would have thought. You know, um, all the, I don't know. It, it's one of those weird things where, um, comparing it to another Shakespeare play, 
which I'm going to see if I can get him to, to come back and, and talk about with me. But with Richard II, of just that, because Antony is such a foolhardy party boy, yeah, it, drunken idiot, it's like, even though at times Octavius is cold and Caesar is cold and cruel, mm-hmm. at the same time he's justified because Octavius is down with the business of ruling the empire right, right. and uh, and antony 100 percent clearly is not yes and so that's like the great thing is like even though he he and also like that behavior mm-hmm. and uh getting into a bit more what you can get away with for modern adaptations and modern shakespeare right I don't know how much we want to read into it, but kind of pretty seriously, Octavius is sexually assaulted by Antony in that party moment where they're supposed to be getting along um, and being friends. I did not read it that way. I I, I wouldn't go with... Maybe that's going a bit too far, but it's like it's like... Completely Octavius. Caesar's outrage of like and and like because Antony gropes his ass and is like kind of feeling him up as he's like forcing him to dance. But I don't think that was but I don't think that was sex. I think that might have been one of Antony's few calculated times where it's like if I can make this annoying little brat lose his cool then i win i read it as drunken taunting yes a mixture of fun but taunting but this is fun this is this is why i want to do this podcast of just like just reading of just different interpretations of scenes very and that's a very common tactic for well and say what you will there are more politicians like Antony than there are like Octavian. Oh yeah, uh, I'm not getting into it, but <laughs> I'm not going to get I'm not going to get too into it. But but one of the things, but but that's a power dynamic, and and the truth of the matter is is that Antony has this unassailable reputation because he's been gone from Rome for over a decade, and people still remember him as that. Octavian is basically flying by by the love of Caesar and his own personal abilities. So if Antony can kind of... All Antony has to do is get the kid to sort of slip up. And while Antony probably isn't calculated or sober enough to do that consciously, he knows how to make octavian uncomfortable oh yeah well no 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 with that i'll 100 agree and that's definitely in the performance yeah of that that's what i read into the performance so i also read just like that that's well i mean that that's part of also shakespeare's great writing in in that scene of that in this moment where everyone including pompey Mm -hmm. are all united and everything seems like Oh, we can all work it out. We can all make it this better. Antony screws it up and just manages to make them even more divided. Even after he's just 
agreed to a marriage alliance. So theoretically, there's nothing to stop them from being nothing but friends. Yep. It's now just like they're even more divided. Right. Which Antony had a reputation for in history. He was not... For all his skill as a soldier and as a general, he didn't really play nice with others. No, he was a... Well, um, quote quote from HBO's Rome, just from from Octavian, I'd hoped you'd learn some humility in Gaul. Now I see you are the same crude, arrogant lech you always were. Well, and to put put matters into, into more perspective, Antony was Caesar's number two. Not because Caesar wanted him, but kind of out of necessity, because his other chosen guy, uh, Labinus, ended up actually siding with the Pompeians. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so Labinus was... There's a great great historical YouTube uh, channel called History Servilius. Goes very into detail about what's going on with, uh, with Caesar's life. And he he says on multiple occasions that Antony was no Labinus, and Labinus <laughs> was the Labinus was the guy who was actually wintering with the legions during the whole Gallic conquest. So, and the fact that Caesar trusted Labinus completely, and to have him turn on him, was was devastating because he he had deprived. Caesar of a skilled lieutenant, and now Caesar had to go with Antony, who was a skilled soldier, but as we see, not exactly about as about as subtle as a bulldozer. <laughs> great way of putting it, my friend. Great way of putting it. Yeah. Well, that's a bit for more historical Antony to give context, but we're getting out that Shakespeare. But the, fact that they, but, but the fact they brought that in was perfect. That the fact that. Shakespeare was able to kind of catch on to that as perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Shakespeare's working off of Plutarch and other... He's working off of major common sources, so he's not really deviating from... Or if it is propaganda, it's propaganda that's been mostly just... That's right. won the day and is mostly accepted at face value. Or, well, even with historiography... And also, let's face it, Shakespeare was Shakespeare had to gear his audience towards propaganda in the first place with those histories. So, well, with, with when he was doing with Wars of the Roses, yes, much more. Yeah, I will say, like, if we ever get into it, um, just as a preview for that, he's much more subversive than you think. It's only when he really gets into the Tudors specifically, mm-hmm. it's much more yes. clear cut propaganda. When right. it comes to actually yeah. the Lancat the Lancastrians, he's not as propaganda propaganda as you'd think. He's actually much more skeptical and much more kind of like even-handed with them. Good. He's, yeah, like even Henry V, there's like one critical line from Henry IV that puts everything that happens in Henry V into like very serious, <laughs> like different light. I'm just like... Mm. Oh wow, Henry, you're a total. You didn't change. You are a jackass still. Right. Just in a different way. Mm-hmm. Which might. I don't know 
that might be me reading into things, but yeah. So that's the first half. I think we've covered mm-hmm. most of the talk of the first half. Yes. So getting to the second half, second half was much more the dramatic heft and like all the pieces falling into place. Agreed. So the scene where I really want to give single out and I wish, gosh, I'm going to say it again. I'm I'm sorry. Just in a very loving way, I wish National Theater would let us be able to just own copies of this because this would be great. Yeah is I adore the, the the scene and performance that I don't care anyone who says that Shakespeare is hard to understand. Yeah. Like, the scene where, where Antony is saying farewell to his staff yeah. is so damn heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a great performance of just everyone in there and the perform the non audible performances by the staff also are just so great mm-hmm. of just crying, but at the same time trying to keep safe face Yeah. of just capturing that, which is necessary whenever telling any version of the Anthony story of just that and great dialogue again, <laughs> Why am I praising Shakespeare for, for things he's done that everyone praises? But just amazing moment of just that capturing that and finds this an amazing job of capturing that raw desperation. Yeah. And also raw love. Where it's like he's not drunk, but he is drunk in that like he's drunk on this like despair yeah. that he's just trying to block out. Mm. But at the same time, like, everyone can see through it. And that's also great. And Eno Barbus, being the blunt man that he is, like, just says, like, why are you doing this to all of us? Yeah. Like, this isn't helping. This is only making it worse. Please don't do this to us. Yeah. And Cleopatra, at the same time, like, kind of blindly ignoring reality. Mm-hmm. And you're saying like la 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 la. Not that though. I mean, later scene that's also great, which Okinado did. It's very interesting. That brings a whole another depth to Cleopatra of of when. And a green great great. I'm gonna keep on saying this. So you say something else, buddy, but like for me, great performances of when like Caesar's envoy comes in and pretty much the way I read it successfully has pretty much swayed at that point, swayed Cleopatra to be like, yeah, okay, fine. I'll Antony's on his own. I don't care. Yeah. And then Antony like just says like, hey, I'm still in power here. Whip this guy. Yeah. Whip this guy? Like, what? Uh, should we? It's like, yeah. He's just right. a messenger. Whip right. him. Yeah. So I don't kill the messenger, which, just as we watching it, Antony had a scene in, um, in Rome where Cicero basically calls him, rightfully so, 
an ignorant, uh, boisterous moron. And Anthony, was. right? And Anthony, he he keeps saying, "Go on, go <laughs> on." And oh, that as, episode, yes. And as the messenger finishes the final thing, Anthony screams, yeah, and yells as he's charging at this messenger, just beats the crud out of him. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. Anthony, he's willing to, he's willing to hold on to power, even if it's as simple as beating the beating someone up. Yeah. Well, he can't get his precious masculinity even momentarily questioned. No. But, and that's also some good performance right there, is that he... A- Anthony, is a, Anthony is a very self-destructive character. Probably one of the most self-destructive that we see in Shakespeare. Yeah. Very much so. Well, well from the minute we see him, we see him drunk and partying. Well, and the and, problem and is then, that he's one... And then it goes to the negative negative side where right. it's like it's clearly he knows it's over but he's still trying to to win even well, though he's and already the worst part, and the worst part is that he embodies that the tragedy of pride where he just his ego will not let him admit it's over and it would be admirable if it wasn't so sad yes although if it if it wasn't so sad we wouldn't feel any sympathy for him exactly Exactly. If he, if if Anthony could have given up, he wouldn't. And then also gets into, um, for me, and this is where Shakespeare is a great adapter of that, taking that moment from Plutarch of just that, and really making so much great drama of that when I, I think really in a way, even though he won't ever admit it, mm-hmm. it's only when, when Enobarbus abandons yes. Anthony that he truly not just know, knows it's That's over. Yeah. It's not just that he, he knows it's over. He, in his heart, he's lost too. Mm-hmm. It's not just like both. It's both the. It's both like the. The brain already kind of knows, but right. it's really in that moment where the heart gives up too. That that wailing, and great job by Fines of saying, you know, Barbus. Well, and I think, I hate to say it, I think that's the moment where the alcohol stops. Where no matter how much you drink, it's not going to numb the pain. Nope. Some people do interpret love interpretations of Enobarbus and Antony. I'm glad they didn't go with that for this. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not that, that that's wrong by any stretch. Mm-hmm. But it's just like they don't have to have ha, have consummated their love for it to be like such a great and true betrayal. Yeah, because that's for him. That's ro- he's already felt Cleopatra somewhat betray him, or at least Egypt betray him in Cleopatra mm-hmm. leaving him. Right. To have Enobarbus 
it's basically Rome abandoning him. Right. Rome Rome has given up on you. As well. And even though that's before he, if I'm remembering it correctly, that's still before he actually technically wins a battle. He wins a battle, but he still knows, like, yeah, it didn't really matter, though. Right. Right. You've lost, and Eno's kind of like, I can't help you. But at the same time, he still dies of of grief and, and shame for what he's done. Mm-hmm. Which is, well, that, which again, we're going to say it again, mostly true to history. Mm-hmm. Mostly true to history. All that stuff. Most of the one, most of the one that, like, Roman. That Antony's most trusted lieutenant, Ahinobarus, left him, and that Antony respected him and loved him so much that he said, like, hey, buddy, you left your gold. He was like, what? Yeah, I'm sending your gold. I don't care. I don't care. Good luck to you. There is a... And then he died two days later. Yeah. By the way, there's uh, there's a moment to actually in history to bring up Labinus again um when caesar said well when 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 they found out that uh Labinus was not going to side with caesar when he marched on rome uh surprisingly caesar was was not angry he actually said he actually offered to have somebody bring uh Labinus's, uh things back to the city and it's like hey follow your conscience but Here's your stuff, and 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 I'm sorry. And I think that there there is something very touching about that when it, you see that a lot in Rome, where it's kind of like, you know what, I led you guys on a bad path. If you guys want to go, go. I will not. Dis- it, it is not dishonor if you leave me. And sometimes they'll stick around, but other times they're like, all right, this is goodbye. Very good, my friend. Very, very true and very good. Well, and it's it's almost like that makes makes it's one of the reasons why I still go back to the Romans. I'm still fascinated and compelled mm-hmm. by them. Well, because you'll never you'll never find another group of people in history that they are willing to accept defeat in the sense of, you know what, I fought my hardest. Or I screwed up bad. I'm gonna pay the price for it. Maybe in Japanese history, but yeah. Then I, then I should say in the West. Okay. In the West. Because let's face it, no one in medieval history is like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, England called themselves. So- the English kings called themselves the kings of England and France until Napoleon made them stop. Yeah. Napoleon. Napoleon. As I in the, your, yeah. As I in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that. But you're right. When when Eobardus leaves him, it's like Rome's given up on you. You're done. Yeah. I don't hate... It's like, I don't hate you, but I can't help you. Yeah. Well, 
But then, like, yeah, and then the sad scene of him just being so guilt-stricken by it, mm-hmm. by what he's done, that he can't go on living. Well, and also, can we point this out for a moment? Suicide in the ancient world wasn't actually frowned upon, as w- as it was uh, in the in the Christian modern world. Yes. Well, that's Judeo-Christianity brought into the world the idea that suicide is a sin. Before then, actually, before then, it, it was like not to a pagan society. It was, it was not. No, and it was actually, it was actually somewhat common. Common. It was a way to, it was a way to save your honor. Very often, yes. So, and. So those final moments with Antony are pretty great pretty hard. at being raw, being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The final moment with, with, I mean, I do love, love the moment where his, his body, body servant is ordered to kill him and he, he instead stabs himself. Mm. Because he's not willing to kill Antony himself. <laughs> All that is great. All that is great. It is. Just phenomenal. And that's when it gets into real what you expect from a Shakespeare. And not just of a Shakespeare history, I would say, Frank, quite frankly, of a Shakespeare tragedy. Mm-hmm. Like, this is right there with, like, Hamp. Antony and Cleopatra, I will say, but... Compared to its much more popular Julius Caesar, I think rightfully so, Julius Caesar is a better play. Yes. But when it really hits, this play, um, Pathos, I think, I think Pathos-wise, it can, Antony and Cleopatra can, especially in the latter half, can really eclipse Julius Caesar. I would I would agree with that because I, I think it it touches. Brutus on is a more interesting kind of character. Well, Brutus and Cassius are more interesting characters. And what Antony does is also very interesting. But there's a universal theme though of life where we love we love passionate love stories, even mm-hmm. if we don't want to admit it. And and let's face it, Caesar, the death of a tyrant. To, to the Western world is not going to resonate as badly. Well, Julius Caesar is more, is the tragedy of Brutus. It's really, Julius Caesar is the biggest, like, misleading title. It's really a, a Brutus show. But, yeah. I'll, I'll get you to watch the, the James Mason, Marlon Brando movie, and we can come back to talk about that one. Mm. I think I, saw clips of, I, think I, I think I saw clips of that when I was a kid. It's really yeah. amazing. And honestly, okay, not, with, no joking, Evan, like, seeing Brando's give the, the Friends Romans Countryman speech, it's mm-hmm. a great reminder of, oh, Brando is a genius. Even though it's easy mm-hmm. to character and mock him, Brando yeah. is a genius. Brando is a genius. Yeah. And... He is amazing in, in that movie. 
I don't want to overhype it, but and come back on when you've seen that movie to attack me for saying that. But he's a genius. Okay. Hmm. I'm. I don't want to watch a Charlton Heston one because I've heard bad things. <laughs> oh. Ooh. It's a shame because I do like Charlton Heston a lot. Anyways, uh, and so then we get, and Okanedo, um, one, okay, getting back to praising for, for, for Kasim's final scene as, as Caesar, or, or mm-hmm. second to last scene. Right. That consoling and assurance from, from Caesar it's always like very that's a great challenge of like how much you want to make it mocking mm. and how like non-reassuring it is yeah and again where other people have since copied it because again it also comes from history but just hbo's rome which we've cited several times that they, they basically did that same of 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 where it's like nothing he says is wrong but but Cleopatra can completely see through it all. Yeah. And so like Kasim's performance of like, oh don't worry Cleopatra, I don't want your life at all, and I want the best for you and your children. Get it? Mhm. Um. He's not he's not lying. But he is perhaps guilty of this of of a loose interpretation of my exact words. <laughs> yeah. So it's, again, that's such a, and that's such a political thing to thing to do. It's like I wasn't lying. I wasn't telling the truth, but I wasn't lying. <laughs> oh, that's a great political statement, my my friend. Well, I mean, and Winston Churchill. <laughs> Winston Churchill. <laughs> has said that politics is telling people over and over and over again that something is going to happen and then being able to explain why it didn't happen. (laughs) Oh, Winston. Yes. Well, Uh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) So. So, and. And this is where I really am glad we get Shakespeare dialogue to do it. Mm hmm. Even though, in some ways, it, it's a bit too long for me. Yes. Okanedo's final moments as Cleopatra are truly great. Agreed. Of just that, of that the metal of, of Cleo, Cleopatra is shown, and the strength mm-hmm. and resolve of that. No, no way. I'm not going to be part of your triumphal parade right i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be your trophy and which is which is pretty accurate to history as to why she did it by most accounts and um and it, with, i mean and it was per, per, personal interpretations for me i will say she might have been more inclined to live until she saw pro no, I'll, I'll say it. The love of her life dying right in front of her mm-hmm. probably was not good for her. No. That, yes. 
dying in front of her saying, please, Cleopatra, live for our kids. Yeah. Uh, well, that, and also... That doesn't do great for your psyche. And I think... And she knew at the end of the day, she knew that the gig was the jig was up. Which is her, her as a very much more independent and in command queen was up. Yeah. All that was left for was to be a really, really diminished vassal. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't Cleopatra, not at no. all. No. But that's the historical Cleopatra. But well, but even then, that's this Cleopatra. Is that this Cleopatra is? I, I hate to say it. She's too. She's too vain, and too proud to be anything less than the grand ruler of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, and and I think it was. This is also some interpret up for interpretation. It is also a kind of a final fu to Octavian, saying that it's like, you may have, you can have my country, you can, have, you can have everything around me, but me. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're always, you'll always have lost that, that one little victory. And Okinedo does that phenomenally. Yes. And part of it also to credit where, is the supporting actresses with her, mm-hmm. they do a great job of, of dying with her and just yep. really selling it all. Mm-hmm. Well, can you I'm imagine sure. that ty- having that type of loyalty uh, from your servants? It's really hard to imagine. It's that, a different that's time. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. You're sure as hell never going to find like, find anyone like that in, uh, in, in Washington today. <laughs> Well, you never know. Um, there is a story once that uh, my father liked to tell Ooh. where um, during the Watergate scandal, um, mm. okay, the name is blanking on me just right now. Give me a second. G. Gordon Liddy mm-hmm. said, to oh, Nixon, yeah. said to Nixon, I will sign a paper and kill myself saying I was behind everything. Wow. Do you want me to do do it? (laughs) And Nixon said no. Not bad. Liddy was willing to to take to fall on the sword and take all the blame. Hmm. He was willing to to die for his president. So and that's pretty recent in in, in human history. So I stand corrected. It's not completely gone. No. But that was one person and probably possibly one of the reasons why Nixon didn't take him up on it is maybe people wouldn't have believed him. That's a distinct possibility. It would have been like... Like, really? Yeah. Oh. Well, I won't get into it. There's... Maybe off but podcast, I'll, I'll talk about that, but yeah. The, the long and short of it is that what she, what she was able to accomplish with that is that final... The key with tragedy, in my opinion, yes, it's sad, 
there has to be that little glimmer of I won. <laughs> Interesting. There always has to be a tiny, tiny glimmer of I won. I won? Hmm. Yes, and here's why. Take take the two most take the take the take the most famous tragedy of all, Romeo and and Juliet. Yes, they fall in love. That's the tragedy. That's that's the sad part. But look at the fact that the families actually say that we're ending our feud because it's caused too much bloodshed. That's that is the real tragedy. Is that something good? had to come out of something so horrible. Hmm. Yeah. It's a very interesting way of reading it, my friend. Thank you. It's a very interesting... I like that. Well, and it, 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 support it support your argument be... that, that Fortin Bross gives Hamlet his, his funeral yeah. and celebrates him as a great man. Uh-huh. It, it did, literally, that did not occur to me until just now. It's like, wait a minute. That's tragic. Yeah, it's like tragedy. Yeah, tragedy is sad, but there has to be some kind of victory that came out of it. <laughs> I don't know if I'll fully agree with that. There's little victory in King Lear, although yes. True. True. But there is still some hope. Yeah. And yes, yes, I can see that. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be a perfect note to end on, my friend. I think so, too. I think so, too. This is... I'll see if I can get you on, if nothing else, for at least one more Roman play. If we can talk about we can talk about Julius Caesar. Ooh. And if you're also up to it, there's, the, there's one other Roman play. Well, there's two other Roman plays that Shakespeare did, and there's film adaptations of those as well. One with Ray Fiennes again. Oh. Coriolanus. So we could Oh yes. Talk, we could talk about that one maybe someday. So thank you so much, Evan, for coming on board on to this this little podcast of mine. And mm-hmm. uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you back later on for more talk about Shakespeare movies. See you then. Mm.